Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, many dead in southern Turkey and Syria, where hundreds of buildings have collapsed in a major earthquake. Also, Aboriginal leaders from some of the most remote parts of the Northern Territory tell PM they would like a bit more detail about the voice to Parliament before the referendum. Who is the voice? What is the voice? That's the confusion that people are having. So government need to really go and sit down with the people and explain. We need to see what the model's going to look like and uh, then uh, we can go from there. And MDMA and a psychedelic drug approved by the medicines regulator for mental health treatment, but are the studies into their use reliable? One of the crazy things with, with the research at the moment is, you know, it's using the gold standard model of a randomised controlled trial. You know, with, with these sorts of drugs, it, it's very difficult to blind people as to whether they got the placebo or not. Thanks for your company. There are scenes of widespread destruction in Turkey, formerly known as Turkey, where more than 200 people have died after a magnitude 7.8 earthquake struck the country's southeast and neighbouring Syria. In one province, at least 130 buildings have collapsed, injuring hundreds of people, and there's now a desperate effort to rescue those trapped in the rubble. Officials have warned that the death toll will continue to rise and are urging people to stay away from buildings as the threat of aftershocks lingers. Turkish Interior Minister Suleyman Soylu says rescue teams and agencies responded to the disaster immediately. A 7.4 magnitude earthquake is seriously destructive. At the moment, all of our governors are at the head of their duties. Police, Turkish Armed Forces, disaster and emergency teams, Turkish Red Crescent and search and rescue teams from all over the country are being dispatched to the region. Our reporter Tom Joyner joins us from Istanbul. Tom, this earthquake happened very early in the morning. How clear is the devastation now that rescue teams are working in daylight? Oh, hi, David. Yes, well, now the sun has risen. It's become clear that this is really an enormous disaster. And although, as it say, it began in the freezing depth of the night earlier this morning, the death toll still seems to be climbing hour by hour. Those rescuers that uh, we heard earlier are working desperately to pull survivors from the rubble in cities right across the southern part of Turkey. Now, so far, at least 76 people in the country are killed and many, many more injured and more than 110 killed over the border in Syria. But as you mentioned, authorities on both sides fear those numbers will surely rise over the course of the morning and the day. Turkey sits on top of major fault lines and is somewhat prone to earthquakes. So how does this one compare to pre- previous serious quakes? Yeah, that's, that's right, David. So Turkey sits astride a number of tectonic plates. So uh, people and authorities in uh, right across the country, but particularly in that southern region aren't totally unaccustomed to them, but that doesn't mean they can't cause this huge amount of havoc when they do occur. Now, this one that happened uh, earlier this morning was a massive earthquake. The effects were felt as far away as places like Cairo and uh, Lebanon and in Cyprus uh, and in Israel. The US Geological Survey says the quake had a magnitude of 7.8, the epicentre just north of the southern Turkish city of Gaziantep. Now, that is, that's enormous, and it, it shares the title with the strongest ever in this country, 
which happened way back in 1939. So the last serious earthquake since, uh, sorry, the last serious earthquake before this one was just over two years ago, and that rated a seven um, magnitude. So this one is bigger than that. Some of the pictures coming through now show pretty extraordinary and, and very concerning scenes of destruction, huge piles of rubble standing where multi-storey buildings were standing just you know, last night. Is there anything to be said about the construction of, of buildings, how well constructed they are in Turkey to withstand earthquakes? Yes, and uh, the, the, there are programs to ensure earthquake-resistant buildings, as there are in a lot of countries that are in earthquake-prone areas, but it's not perfect. Uh, Turkey is a, uh, the modern country itself sits um, where previously many previous civilizations once were, so not all buildings are up to scratch, um, though things have come a long way since 1939. Certainly there is an earthquake insurance program around the country. I have to myself have earthquake insurance even here in Istanbul, more than 800 kilometres away from the epicentre of this morning's earthquake. Uh, but even so, part of the danger now is in partially collapsed buildings. Those initial hours after disaster are, of course, crucial for rescuing. But also now we've got people who are still trapped in, you know, behind twisted metal uh, and rubble. So um, those structures could still topple over. Uh, conditions for rescuers are therefore really difficult. It's very cold right now. It's it's winter, um, so rescuers are battling not only the dark but also uh, bitter wintry conditions. Tom Joyner in Istanbul, thank you so much for that. And the Associated Press Thanks, News Agency is now reporting a death toll of 360 people in Syria and Turkey. And as we've been reporting, that number is expected to rise further. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Ahead, Beyonce becomes the most decorated artist in the history of the Grammy Awards. What's behind her enduring appeal? I don't think it is going too far to say that she may be the biggest cultural icon that exists on the planet today. She is everywhere. Everybody loves her stuff. You don't want to go around saying negative things about Beyonce because people will absolutely come for you. Well, to Canberra now, and the first day of parliamentary sittings for the year has brought a bombshell resignation. The outspoken Greens Senator, Lydia Thorpe, is resigning from the party to sit on the crossbench. The move complicates the government's ability to pass legislation through Parliament and could have implications for the referendum on a voice to Parliament. Senator Thorpe says she's going to focus on growing the black sovereignty movement in Australia and isn't announcing her position on The Voice just yet. Samantha Donovan reports. After talks on whether the party will support an Indigenous voice to Parliament, Lydia Thorpe has decided she can no longer serve as a Green senator. This country has a strong grassroots black sovereign movement full of staunch and committed warriors... And I want to represent that movement fully in this parliament. It has become clear to me that I can't do that from within the Greens. Now I will be able to speak freely on all issues from a sovereign perspective. She says Greens MPs, party members and supporters have told her they want to vote yes in the referendum on a voice. This is at odds with the community of activists who are saying treaty before voice. This is the movement I was raised in. This is who I am. 
Senator Thorpe wouldn't announce her position on The Voice today, saying she wants to continue negotiations with the government. She thanked the Greens leaders for their support and confirmed she intends to keep voting with the party on climate matters. My focus now is to grow and amplify the black sovereign movement in this country, something we've never had. The Greens leader, Adam Bant, says he's saddened by Senator Thorpe's decision. He says he told her she could stay in the party, be its First Nations spokesperson and vote differently to the party on The Voice if she chose to do so. And in that case, he would take over as Greens spokesman on The Voice. But that offer was rejected. I said to um, Lydia that I felt that she could continue to advocate um, for black sovereignty from within the Greens. She's obviously come to a different view. Senator Thorpe's move to the crossbench could affect the government's ability to pass legislation, including that for the voice referendum. If she votes against the government, it would need to secure the support of the Greens and two crossbenchers, for example, David Pocock and Jackie Lambie, rather than the one extra crossbench vote it needed before. Adam Band maintains the situation in the Senate remains essentially the same as before Senator Thorpe's announcement. Any time that the opposition doesn't agree with the government, um, the government will still need the support of the Greens to get legislation through. There might be instances now where the government has to uh, perhaps secure one additional vote. Mr Bant confirmed the Greens are yet to decide their position on the voice to Parliament. Well, the Greens want to see progress on all elements of the statement from the heart on truth, treaty and voice and we've been in discussions with the government for some months now uh, about ensuring that we see that progress. The Greens chose Lydia Thorpe to replace Richard Di Natale in the Senate in 2020. She was elected to the Senate last year. That means her term isn't due to end until mid-2028. So should Victorians who voted her in as a Greens senator be angered by her departure to the crossbench? Adam Bant. Look, I expect that there's a lot of Greens members and supporters and voters who feel like me, who feel sad to see Senator Thorpe go, but she's made that decision. Like the Greens, the Liberal Party is yet to decide if it'll support the voice referendum. The opposition leader, Peter Dutton, is again calling for the government to give more detail on the plan. People in the vast majority support efforts to improve reconciliation, to improve outcomes for Indigenous Australians. But I think there are models that the, the public could support and I think there are others uh, that could turn them off. But I also think there, there is an element of people who instinctively would want to support but won't without the detail. And that's, that's why I think the Prime Minister has to reconsider his position and hopefully put that detail out. That's the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, Samantha Donovan reporting, well, speaking of the detail, while prominent people backing the voice to Parliament are satisfied it's the Parliament that should design the bureaucracy around it, assuming the referendum vote is actually successful, there is some dissent from some of the most remote parts of Australia. Some Aboriginal leaders living out bush in the Northern Territory have told PM they would like to hear a bit more about the voice structures before the national vote. Calls for more detail are coming from some of the communities where the poverty and power imbalances that the voice will try to address are most dire. Jane Barden reports. The Prime Minister outlined his plan for a voice to Parliament at the Garma Festival last July. 
Yolngu leader and NT independent MP Yinye Gula was there. It's his electorate in remote Arnhem Land. He wants more information about the voice before the public votes. We are still not sure. And if I am not sure about what the voice is, there'll be people out there in the communities that would be still wondering about who is the voice, what is the voice. That's the confusion that people are having. So government need to really go and sit down with the people and explain. Garma is held on Gumach leader Jawa Yunapingu's land. You know, it's very hard to talk about you know, the, the voice to parliament when we still don't know what it really is. So we need more information. Well, the federal opposition is demanding details on the voice model, Mr Yunapingu is just looking for some more. Although we hear about the voice, but it's all going to come into the communities and to all of us. Patricia Yusea is the mayor of Queensland's northern Cape York, based at Bamaga. We feel that it's a really good, great opportunity for us to have a voice in there. Well, I think um, we need to see what the model's going to look like and uh, then um, we can go from there. Are you wanting that information before we all vote in the referendum or will it be OK for the government to outline that afterwards? No, we, we're looking for before. In your community, what are some of the key issues of priority to you at the moment? Well, I really want the voice to look at the issues we have across all the remote communities. And one of them is living conditions and their housing conditions. At the moment, our health status is, you know, really bad indication that we are dying much younger than the normal Australian population. 24-year-old Shania Richards from Port Lincoln was elected as the governor of South Australia's Youth Parliament last year. Yeah, I see it's a very great opportunity for a great place to start. It's really urgent that we do start somewhere. What's your view about whether the public should be given a bit more information about what form the voice might take? We can't make a correct decision if we really have half the information required to make that choice. And so, yes, I do believe that the information should be shared freely and that is the key to actually make people believe that we are needing this. In Halls Creek in Western Australia's Kimberley, Jaru leader Ribna Green heads the Jurabellan Native Title Land Aboriginal Corporation. The jury's out in some respects. I think I'd like to support it, but there's a lot of questions hanging over it, uh, the details. I mean, I don't want to fall into the same category as uh, Dutton and others. Uh, there's still a lot of questions. I live in Halls Creek, which has many needs around social welfare, justice, and questions still remains about how this is going to meet uh, my constituents in a remote part of the Some remote Indigenous community leaders agree with the Prime Minister that details of the voice bureaucracy can follow the public vote on the principle. Cape York Yarraba Mayor Ross Andrews. The detail of the voice will, you know, be considered and and developed by government uh, and the experts at a later date. But at this stage, uh, the focus is on getting as, you know, as much people supporting it as we can. Ian Trust is the executive chair of the Wannan Foundation, which runs programmes to tackle disadvantage and over-reliance on the welfare state in Kununurra. I mean, the reason why I support it is that I think um, when you look at the history of Aboriginal affairs in in this country to bring about real change is going to take 
could take a generation or two. We're talking about maybe three or four successive governments. We need to have some sort of consistency of a plan and of a vision that's actually held by Aboriginal people themselves, not by government. Many of these remote leaders, including NTMP Yinye Gula, also want progress towards truth-telling and treaty processes as well that would see Indigenous people helping to direct how Australia reckons with its dark colonial history and provides recompense for dispossession. We have been waiting for a long, long time. And everybody else is creating a pathway on what they think is best for us. This time, if the treaty, the voice and truth-telling are on the agenda, let's do it properly. Let's work on it together. That's Yolnu leader Yinya Gulia speaking to Jane Barden. Well, the Northern Territory government will reinstate alcohol restrictions, creating compulsory dry zones across town camps and communities in response to the ongoing social crisis in Alice Springs. Communities that want to allow alcohol will have to develop a management plan, which must be passed by at least 60% of residents in a vote. Here's NT Chief Minister Natasha Files explaining the move. I've always said we need to be agile in this space, and it's trying to find that balance between respecting local community voices. And there'll be some people that'll be disappointed with today's announcement, but it does provide a clear pathway, allowing local leadership to come together around this issue and a clearly defined process. That's the NT Chief Minister Natasha Files. The federal government has also announced $250 million in additional funding for community safety. Reporter Samantha Johnshire joined me earlier from Alice Springs. Sam, NT Chief Minister Natasha Files says these restrictions are not a return to stronger futures. That's the federal legislation brought in to extend the Northern Territory's emergency response from 2007. So was the Chief Minister, do you think, reticent at all to take this kind of action? Yes. Well, for the last six months, the Territory government has been reluctant to acknowledge the effect that reversing this legislation has had. And they say they've been listening to members of the community who say they want equal access to alcohol. But she's come under fire from um, a number of angles over the original decision to sunset these restrictions six months ago without a plan for ongoing alcohol management. You know, at the time, police, a number of Aboriginal service groups and other community leaders warned that letting these laws lapse without sufficient consultation or planning would result in an increase in harm. And six months on, those organisations say that they've been proved right. Yeah, so how will this be received then in Central Australia? While there are, of course, you know, a number of different opinions on this, I think broadly this decision to bring back these widespread grog bans is going to be well received. The anti-government has been under huge amounts of pressure from all sides, including Federal Labor Representative Marion Scrimger, Health Services, Police and First Nations Social Justice Rights Commissioner June Oscar, on top of many local Aboriginal leaders who all say they want to bring these bans back. But there have also been calls to see this as a complex issue that's about a lot more than grog reform. There's also extra funding from the federal government announced today, $250 million on top of what was announced last week. Here's the Prime Minister outlining what that's for. That will include improved community safety and cohesion through more youth engagement and diversion programs, along with improved CCTV and lighting. It will improve job creation. It will include on-country learning. Importantly, preventing and addressing issues caused by fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Better services, investing in families, investing in increased domestic 
violent services. That's Anthony Albanese in Parliament today. Sam, has the situation improved at all in Alice Springs and, and will this funding from the federal government help? There are certainly some early suggestions that these interim measures that include, you know, stricter policing measures and shorter bottle shop hours have had an initial impact. But, you know, we, we have heard from many over the last week that uh, until you address a lot of the underlying issues that um, the Prime Minister was just talking about, you're not going to make a dent. This extra $250 million uh, is a significant investment and I think a lot of people are welcoming it. So it will remain to be seen exactly what kind of effect that has. But, you know, over the last two weeks, we've been hearing not only that, you know, the issues are around jobs and youth well-being, but, you know, very broad issues like housing and self-determination. So while this is a significant investment, uh, it will remain to be seen exactly, you know, how that plays out. That's Samantha Joncher reporting from Alice Springs. The drugs ecstasy and magic mushrooms have been the target of countless police operations and the subject of warnings about the dangers they pose to the health and even sanity of those who use them. But late on Friday, Australia's drug regulator, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, approved the use of their active ingredients, MDMA and psilocybin, for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. The move makes Australia the first country in the world to officially recognise the drugs as medicines, and though multiple studies have thrown up positive results as to their effectiveness, several experts in the field have expressed concerns that not enough research has been done, for example, on the longer-term outcomes. Dr Stephen Bright is a senior lecturer at Edith Cowan University who's involved in clinical trials of both drugs, and we spoke earlier. It was absolutely unexpected. I haven't spoken to a single colleague yet who isn't in shock and disbelief that Australia would be the first country in the world to recognise these drugs as medicines. So there's two significant approvals by the TGA, MDMA and psilocybin. Just explain what they are and their potential application for patients. Sure. So MDMA is often referred as ecstasy. It's not actually a psychedelic in that it doesn't change people's visual perceptions, but it really softens people. You know, it's often been called the love drug. And so it makes a lot of sense to use it as a tool in the context of psychotherapy to help build relationships. And particularly when it comes to trauma, because it allows people to re-experience the trauma um, without so much emotion that they're able to talk about it, process it, uh, where they wouldn't have been able to do that without the assistance of the drug. Now, psilocybin is, is a classic psychedelic. Um, it creates significant and powerful changes in people's consciousness. Uh, they, they often have mystical experiences where they feel at one with the universe or feel like they've um, had some sort of connection with, with God or some sort of higher power. And there's been lots of research internationally looking at psilocybin as a potential treatment for depression for anxiety, for people with uh, that, that have terminal illness and, and are anxious and depressed about that. And the, the data so far for both MDMA and psilocybin is quite promising. Yeah, let's talk to some of that data because you're amongst the many researchers all over the world who've been studying this for quite a while now as potential treatments. What are the best examples you've come across of these controversial drugs 
helping people, sometimes dramatically, or even curing them? I think one of the best examples is with MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, with the MDMA research, there is some good examples of long-term follow-up where it appears that people have been cured of PTSD at up to three and a half years afterwards. But with most of the other research, the follow-up period, if there actually is one, is no more than 12 months. So it's hard to sort of talk at a data level as to whether people are actually being cured of this long-term or not. One of the crazy things with, with the research at the moment is you know, it's using the gold standard model of a randomized controlled trial. And, you know, with, with these sorts of drugs, it, it's very difficult to blind people as to whether they got the placebo or not. And so as a yeah, consequence... It's, it's very it's obvious like, when, when they're on the drugs, right? Everybody knows, the clinicians know, the participant knows, and this is likely exaggerating how strong the effect is of the treatment because when people are given the placebo, they, they're very disappointed, particularly given the amount of awareness as to these um, treatments now. Some participants are coming in seeing this as, as you know the last, the last opportunity for them, and if this doesn't work, they really don't have any other options. And so when they get the placebo, they're extremely disappointed, and in turn, that's going to increase the apparent effect size of the treatment. And we're really not sure how we can overcome that. This is this has been the subject of, of hot academic debate for the last 12 to 18 months. Is there anywhere near enough detail in the TGA's ruling and what are your concerns around that? Well, my main concern with the TGA ruling is it doesn't mention psychotherapy because, of course, the TGA doesn't regulate psychotherapy, but this this treatment doesn't just involve a drug. It's a drug in the context of a psychotherapeutic protocol. And so... You know, I, I'm not sure how the TGA is going to regulate that, how they're going to regulate the training of psychiatrists or other people involved in this treatment. Um, the treatments at the moment, the way they're provided is with a co-therapy team, typically a male and female team. You know, there's sort of no detail around that. So I think at the moment um, that there really isn't a lot of detail and I, I have faith and I'm cautiously optimistic that the TGA will release um, additional details in the near future and that those details details will um, demonstrate how patients will be protected and how psychiatrists will be assessed in terms of their suitability for providing this treatment. Dr. Stephen Bright, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that's Stephen Bright from Edith Cowan University there. For the past two decades, American singer-songwriter Beyonce has dominated the pop world and tonight she has the record to prove it. She's become the most decorated artist in the history of the Grammy Awards after picking up another four gongs. Isabel Masali with more. She's known as Queen Bee and now she's been handed a new crown. This is an honour. We are witnessing history tonight, breaking the record for the most Grammy wins of all time. Be upstanding and show your respect. It's Renaissance, Beyonce. The album embraces black queer culture and its award for best dance or electronic music album means she's overtaken the previous record holder, George Schulte. The Hungarian-British conductor won 31 Grammys over his career and died in 1997. While Beyonce showed up late to the show, she was there for the big announcement. I'd like to thank my Uncle Johnny, who's not here. 
but he's here in spirit. I'd like to thank my parents, my father, my mother, for loving me and pushing me. My beautiful three children who are at home watching, I'd like to thank the queer community for your love and for inventing this genre. God bless you. Thank you so much to the Grammys. She missed out on Record of the Year, but even the winner of that award, Lizzo, gave her a huge shout-out. Lizzo won with her album, About Damn Time. In the fifth grade, I skipped school to see you perform. <laughs> My sister, she got me out of school. It was literature. I'm good. And um, where are you at, Beyonce? My eyes are wet. <laughs> you changed my life. You, you sang that gospel medley, and the way you made me feel, I was like, I want to make people feel this way with my music. So thank you so much. You clearly are the artist of our lives. I love you. Professor Catherine Strong is a music industry expert with RMIT University. She says Beyonce's record-breaking win reflects not only a long-spanning music career, which is difficult to achieve, but also a change in the Grammys' culture. It is an incredible achievement, especially for a black woman, because one of the things that the Grammys have been criticised for quite a lot in the past is the fact that they do not do, or they have not in the past, certainly done diversity nearly as well as they could do. So to see a, a black woman breaking this record and, and really claiming a place on in music history, not that she hadn't already. Starting off in R&B girl group Destiny's Child, Beyonce took out her first Grammy more than 20 years ago, but her popularity surged as she turned to a solo career, becoming one of the best-selling artists in the world. Professor Strong says she holds a significant place in pop culture. Look, I don't think it is going too far to say that she may be the biggest cultural icon that exists on the planet today. She is everywhere. Everybody loves her stuff. You don't want to go around saying negative things about Beyonce because people will absolutely come for you. Other winners of the night include Harry Styles for Album of the Year. Bonnie Raitt's Just Like That won the Song of the Year. And Viola Davis has become the 18th person to achieve the EGOT status, a term for winning an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar and Tony Award. That's Isabel Masali reporting. And that's the program for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow. Good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. China says it was simply a weather balloon gone astray, but the Pentagon says Beijing was spying. Today, an aerospace engineer and national security expert on what China's up to. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.